0: This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska. A place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. Well, there are some lessons we learn early in life. And uh, one of them I can remember was at Christmas. Uh, On this particular Christmas, there was this big box wrapped in beautiful, sparkly red paper with a gold ribbon, and it had my name on it. And it was there for several days before Christmas, and I could only imagine what was inside. Uh, now, you can imagine what a, a child would think about. Maybe a giant Tonka truck crane. Ah) <laughs> uh-huh. Or a a large model airplane. uh, Or some kind of toy that would bring me joy. uh, Something that I could play with until next Christmas. And that's what I was thinking about. And so Christmas came and it came time to open up that box. And I can remember that was the first one I went to. You know, they say, save the biggest one for last. Well, I, I went to that one first. And I ripped off the paper and the ribbon, and I opened it up, and here's the lesson I learned. There's nothing worse for Christmas than an ugly sweater. (laughs) Of course, when you're a child, every sweater is ugly. I can remember thinking to myself, I never want to grow up. I don't understand why grown-ups like giving each other clothes. It must be a terrible thing to be a grown-up because you stop getting toys. And inside that box was an ugly, ugly sweater. And you know, the more things change, it seems like the more they stay the same. I was in Kohl's last week and they had a table uh, full of ugly sweaters. In fact, you can go to a website called UglySweaters.com. I was first exposed to them on the television show Shark Tank, where uh, somebody presented the idea, the concept of ugly sweaters, and I think it was Mr. Wonderful that said, oh, this will never go, you know, forget that idea, but one of the other quote, sharks, investors thought it would be a good idea, and now you see these ugly sweaters everywhere now, can I give you a little bit of good pastoral advice at Christmas thank you it's like waiting for the mystery box, right? <laughs> Friends and family don't give their loved ones ugly Christmas sweaters at Christmas. Okay? You just don't do that. Let me show you what I'm talking about. <laughs> that, that's one of them. In fact, when I saw it, uh, we could go to Coles, I begged Lori to buy it for me. and She said, no, honey, I love you too much. And there's one more. Notice, notice the joyful countenance he has on his face. Okay? You know, as the video um, shared with us this morning, there are a lot of things that we can spend money on uh, during the Christmas season. Ugly sweaters really are just representative of many things that... Are insignificant gifts. Uh, In a few months, they'll find their way into a closet, or off to the Goodwill, uh, or they'll be put in the garage, and we forget about them. And we really forget. um, Maybe who gave well, maybe an ugly sweater. I'll never forget who gave it to me, but uh, we forget about those things. Uh, But really, when we're talking about an Advent conspiracy, what we're talking about is doing things differently as people who are followers of Jesus, that we would have His priorities. And and His priorities would impact us in such a way that we would worship fully. Remember, we talked about that last week. That we would give our whole lives to the Lord. That we would say, as Joseph and Mary did, here I am, whatever your will is, God, I'm willing. And that really is what it means to worship fully. That our whole lives would be given over to the Lord as an act of worship. That we're available to Him. That we would align our priorities with, with His priorities. And in this week, we're, we're talking about spending wisely. Uh, there are a lot of things you can invest in. Uh, this year, we're uh, talking about Project Blue. About the Covenant uh, World Relief Clean Water Initiative. And and do you know that for the cost of an ugly sweater, if you were to make that donation to Project Blue to join Covenant World Mission in their clean water initiative, that covenant churches around the country could easily raise that $150,000 that our denomination is seeking to provide clean water for people in places like India. And uh, you'll see out here uh, in the lobby of the church, uh, a Christmas tree, a display that talks about the Clean Water Initiative. In fact, our kids are involved in an initiative called Kids Helping Kids, and they have a pig. And at the offering time, if you throw some change, and hopefully that's not all you throw in the offering basket, but any change that you have in your pocket as you put it in the in the basket or in the bag, what happens is is that uh, that goes to feed the pig. And that will go to help kids in other places have clean water. And our kids are involved in that initiative. Or you can see the Lion and the Lambs Preschool that is a ministry of our church. Uh, There's information there how you can get involved, how you can make a gift that has meaning and purpose, that's aligned with God's priorities for the world, right out here in our lobby. And so I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to think about spending wisely. Uh, to invest your resources in things that matter. Now, I'm not suggesting that you stop giving gifts to your loved ones, but there are some gifts that really aren't necessary. And what if collectively each of us were to make a decision that rather than purchasing those kinds of gifts, that we would invest them in things like Project Blue, in the Covenant World Mission Clean Water Initiative. Do you see the difference it would make? In fact, when I last checked on the website, and you can go actually to our website, and there's a link to the Covenant World Mission Project Blue website. You can click on that, and you can see that they're trying to raise $150,000. And last I checked, they were at $127,000. Okay, so they're almost there. And I'd like to think that each of us making a commitment to align ourselves, I think, with God's priorities, of uh, providing clean water in the name of the one who is the living water, Jesus Christ, uh, that we can help get over that $150,000 goal. So I would encourage you this morning, uh, after the service, to go out, to look at that Project Blue table, to go over to the Lions and Lambs table, uh, to consider uh, the various ways that you can align your spending with God's priorities in the world now. You know, at Christmas time, it's wonderful to read books that give us insight into uh, the birth of Jesus. And there are two I want to recommend to you, uh, two which I'm going to draw from this morning as we talk about our, pathu- uh, our passage in Matthew uh, chapter 2. The first is called God With Us, The Miracle of Christmas by John MacArthur. How many of you are familiar with this book? This is a wonderful book. It's, it's filled with uh, relevant historical information uh, about the story of Jesus' birth. And uh, it's in our church library, and I don't all rush there to get it all at once. Um, but if uh, you ever have a chance to purchase this or come across this, I'd highly recommend it. And then there was another one that I was introduced to by Dave Buchanan, and it's called The Journey Walking the Road to Bethlehem by a pastor named Adam Hamilton. And it says, from the author of the book, 24 Hours That Changed the World. Uh, I have found this book uh, to be a wonderful compliment uh, to MacArthur's book, God With Us. And between the two of these things, uh, it is, they're just full of wonderful, wonderful information. Now, in his book, uh, The Journey Walking the Road to Bethlehem, one of the things that Adam Hamilton points out, is a pastor friend of his who every year at Christmas time uh, says to his congregation, Christmas is not the celebration of your birthday. Now, there may be somebody here that was born on Christmas Day, and you do celebrate your birthday on Christmas Day, but it's not the same as celebrating Christmas, that is. The birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on Christmas Day. So this pastor friend of Adam Hamilton, the author of the book, would say, Christmas is not the celebration of your birthday. And if that's the case, then why are you the one receiving all the gifts? Think about that. And that pastor goes on to say, that if Christmas is really the celebration of our Savior's birthday, uh, we celebrate the, the incarnation, that is, God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. If, if that's really true and we believe that it is, then shouldn't we respond in our celebration in a manner that's representative of how God has gifted us? Now think about this. Think about God transcending time, space, and eternity, right? And He enters human history on Christmas Day. This, this divine interruption that is an expression of His love for you and for me. And there wrapped in the swaddling cloth is the baby Jesus. The Messiah, a long promised King of the Jews, our Savior, the one who would go to a cross and, and die for us, an open expression of, of God's love, that we might, what, have forgiveness of sin, that the separation that existed between ourselves and God could be eliminated, that our sins were as scarlet. They're washed white as snow. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what a gift of our Savior on Christmas. And so doesn't it make sense that we would respond to that gift in like manner? And what Adam Hamilton says, his pastor friend, who tells his congregation, Christmas isn't the celebration of your birthday, it's the celebration of our Savior's birthday, and we need to respond not by being the ones who receive all the gifts, but in the true spirit of our Lord, that we would gift others with gifts that are significant, with gifts that reflect that we have aligned our priorities with those of our Savior Jesus. And that's what we're talking about when we Talk about an Advent conspiracy that, that we are going to work together to do something that is countercultural. That together we're going to encourage one another to align ourselves with God's priorities. That, that we are going to live in the fullness of what it means to be a Christ follower and we are going to respond to the gift that He has given us by gifting others through spending wisely. And and that's what these opportunities are out in the lobby or or others that you can think about. Now, when you think about those who have the capacity to give, there's no greater contrast between one who would align themselves with the Lord's priorities or align themselves with their own selfish intent and priorities. There's no greater contrast than what we see in Matthew chapter 2. Because there we see contrasted Herod the Great and the Magi. And as we look at both of their lives and their response to the birth of Jesus, we see a contrast that that really helps us examine our own hearts and lives. Because I think, if the truth be told, There may be just a smidge, a little bit of Herod in each of our lives. And really, uh, what we want to be more like are the Magi. Let me share with you what I'm talking about. Let's start with Herod. Now, Herod the Great. Now, his name implies something, doesn't it? Uh, Herod uh, was the The king over a vast area that included Judea, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. Now, he was called or appointed king of the Jews by Caesar Augustus. King of the Jews. And the irony is that he wasn't a Jew. He could actually trace his lineage back to Esau... And from Esau came a people group or a nation called Edom, the Edomites. Okay? But Herod's father was a convert to Judaism. And he uh, was appointed and given a position by Rome. And he did some favors for Rome. And as a result of that, he pulled some strings. And his son now is appointed to give him a greater position. In fact, the emperor, as I said, called him the king of the Jews. And that's how Herod saw himself. Now, let me tell you about Herod. Herod was a person who was known for building. And he would build everything from seaports uh, to cities uh, to fortresses. Uh, he rebuilt the temple in such a way that it exceeded even The glory of of Solomon in the building. So, you you, you see all of that in Herod. Now, all of that was to earn him prestige and favor. Herod wanted to be admired. In fact, if you want to see a contrast between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, there's nothing more stark than the photo I'm going to show you. Okay? Okay. Do you you see that mountain there? That is a man-made mountain, and on top of it sat a fortress palace. It rose above the landscape over four hundred feet. Do you know what it was called? The Herodium. Herod built it. Now you see the the beginning of a town or a village there in the forefront. That would be Bethlehem, the birthplace of And so you you see the contrast between the kingdom of God, and, and, and on that mountain would have been this palace that was over 400 feet high, taller than the pyramid of Egypt. Okay? And it was dedicated to his pleasure and his prestige, and a place from which he could exert power. It was his winter home. Right, And there he would entertain dignitaries, friends. He would lavish upon them great luxury. And he would exert power from that mountain. But look there in the foreground. Bethlehem. And there was he born another king. The true king of the Jews. Right? Jesus Christ. This gives you an idea of Herod. He is what we call today a leader who had very strong ego strength. Right? And he was ruthless. He would do anything to retain power. In fact, he was so powerful and so respected by the Roman government who really uh, had, had given him that place of power that he was actually given an army to rule with. And again, he was a ruthless ruler. Let me tell you about the things that he did. He was paranoid. He was threatened by by anything that he saw as a threat to to his power and to his kingship. Uh, He had ten wives. His favorite wife he had executed. You can only imagine what it was like for the others, right? Not only did he execute her, but he executed his mother-in-law and brother-in-law. And if that wasn't enough, he actually put to death three of his own sons. In fact, Caesar, the one who had appointed him, said this about Herod. I'd rather be his pig than a son. Is there anything else you have to say about him? Now, later on, in the end of his life, when he knew he was dying, do you know what Herod did? He gave orders to round up all the prominent people of Jerusalem. And here is the order that upon his death all of them should be executed because he knew that when he died nobody would weep. And he wanted Jerusalem to weep when he died. Now think about that. That's Herod the Great. Okay? Now, now, contrast to that, we see the Magi. It's from the word Magi that we get the word uh, magician or magistrate. And those two words really are descriptive of who uh, the Magi were. They were very men, uh, men who were learned in astronomy and astrology. In those days, it wasn't a separation. Those two were, were practiced together. They were experts in divination. Uh, They were really occultists. But they were also very wise and knowledgeable men. They were not kings, but they served in the court of kings and were trusted advisors. They were priests. They were holy men uh, in the faith of Zoroaster or Zoroastrianism. And in that faith, uh, the primary element of that faith was fire. And they maintained at, at their altar a fire that was perpetual, that burned all the time. Okay? And they were heavily influenced by Jews who had been exiled. Now, do you remember Daniel? When Daniel and and others were exiled into the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar, well, those Jews would have taught about the Old Testament, about the prophets, and as they teach you about those things, they would have taught about the coming of the Messiah. They would have taught about the prophecies concerning the king of the Jews, the one who is a rightful heir to the throne of David, who would rule and reign forever. And so these being learned men, the Magi, would have known about this. Because many of the Jews didn't return to Israel after the exile. They stayed in the influence culture. And so the Magi, as learned men, as priests, as holy men, would have been familiar with the prophecies. Uh, not only that, as those who studied the stars, they would have been familiar with prophecies. Uh, concerning the coming of the Messiah, like the one in Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, that's the sign of a king, will come out of Israel. They would have been familiar with this. And so, when they saw the star, they were interpreting that in the context of Jewish prophecy concerning the Messiah. So they come. And they come to Herod in Jerusalem. And they're wanting to know, who is the one born king of the Jews? Well, what do you think Herod says? I'm the king of the Jews. Even though he wasn't, he fashioned himself that way. He wanted to be known that way. He wanted to contend for the throne that belonged rightfully to Jesus. And so they tell him where they've come from and the circumstances of their arrival. And then Herod calls his holy men, the priests and the scribes of Israel, to come and and tell me, where is the one to be born king of the Jews to be born? And they say, well, everybody knows that. And Herod himself probably knew it. Micah 5, 2. Talks about it, Bethlehem. And so then he sends the Magi out. He says, you go and find him and come back and tell me so that I may worship him. But secretly, what was he plotting to do? He was plotting to put Jesus to death. So the Magi go. And as they go, they come across Jesus. Now, this event actually takes place sometime after his birth. Uh, It could be, scholars think it could be several months to actually two years. And the Magi would have traveled over a thousand miles, and they not only would travel a thousand miles, it would take them three to six months to get there. And isn't it interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, which is written primarily to Jews, that the Gospel would begin with the story of, if you will, Gentile pagan worshippers, who come seeking the King of the Jews. And Matthew's Gospel ends with those who are His not receiving Him, crucifying Him. And so we see in the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel uh, the first um, incident of Gentiles worshiping Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And what a message it is. That the gospel is not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile, for the non-Jew as well. And there you see it. Suddenly, but you see it. Right in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Well, as they come and they worship at the feet of Jesus, what do they do? They have treasure chests. And those chests were reserved for ceremonial occasions in which one would honor royalty or a king... It was customary in ancient times that emissaries would come and they would give the royalty gifts. And in this case, they offered Jesus what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was a gift associated with royalty, with the king. So they worshipped him as a king. Frankincense, uh, that was used uh, in Israel in uh, temple sacrifice and temple worship and so it was used by the priest. And of course we see Jesus as having a kingly office but also a priestly office and not only that that, that because it was used in sacrifice and offering the Lord it also signified deity as well. And then the final thing the mirror, was used in burial. And that would be representative as well of the one who was born as a child would grow to a man and die foreshadows his own death as our Savior do you see all that how God's working that all in to this narrative but an angel comes in a dream and the Magi are told don't go back to Herod because he wants to destroy the baby and so they go back to their land probably Persia through an alternate route. And of course, we know the rest of the story. That Herod is incensed and he gives orders that every male baby two years or younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity be put to death. Because there was room for only one king. And Herod said, that's me. But are you ready for the rest of the story? This is good stuff. Don't you like this? Man! The gifts that the Magi brought, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, they were very valuable. You see, that the Magi brought their very best. They gave their very best. Things of value to Joseph and Mary in honor of Jesus. Well, Joseph and Mary were warned by the Lord not to stay, but to flee to Egypt. Now, how would this couple that didn't have two nickels to rub together have the money to go off and live in Egypt? Well, many scholars say it was the gifts that the Magi bought that financed Jesus' escape in his temporary exile into Egypt until Herod's death. Isn't that amazing? What a contrast! Herod... Who, who spends all their money on himself, on his own kingdom, on propping himself up, his own priorities in life and in the world. For instance, the Magi who, who come and, and, and bow at the feet of Jesus and worship him and give him valuable gifts, as if to align themselves with his priority. They're spending wisely. Do you see the contrast? And you and I at Christmas. We have to make that same choice. Are we going to invest in the maintenance of our own kingdom? Right? The kingdom of Todd, or uh, the kingdom of Janelle, or the kingdom of Kurt, or can you feel in your own name? Or are we going to align ourselves with Christ's priorities in the world? And are we going to follow the way of the Magi? And are we humbly going to invest and spend wisely in the priorities that God has for us? That's the question. Because you see, at Christmas, there's room for only one king. And he is the rightful heir of the throne. And his name is Jesus. It was on the night that he was betrayed in preparation for the sacrifice of his wife that Jesus he gathers his disciples for a meal. And he took bread and having given thanks, what did he do? He gave. He gave. And as he gave, it was representative of him spending wisely the investment of his own life for you and for me. And he broke bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he poured it out. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant which is in my blood, which is poured out for you, is often As you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. And so whenever we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we declare Christ's sacrifice for us, his death, until he comes again. And let me assure you, as certain as there was a first advent, there will be a second advent. A glorious coming of our Lord and Savior as he comes again. For us, those He gave His life for. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You this morning that we have a contrast of how to live life. Investing in the propping up of our own kingdom, the kingdom of our life, or Lord, an investment in the priorities of Your kingdom. We see that illustrated, Lord, in the contrast between Herod and the Magi. Lord, we see it most of all illustrated in the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, this morning as we come and as we take communion, may we come forth, Lord, and in coming forth, may we encounter You in a, in a new way. May, new day. may we, we worship You. And as we worship You, Father, may we commit to spending wisely.